0: In this episode, we're gonna be talking about congenital heart defects. I'll review pathophysiology, signs and symptoms, collaborative care, and key nursing interventions with uh, patent ductus arteriosus, ventricular septal defect, atrial septal defect, coarctation of the aorta, and tetralogy of Fallot. And we'll also talk about some key components of postoperative care after heart surgery. The ductus arteriosus is a small communication between the aorta and the pulmonary artery that's patent during fetal circulation. But once a baby is born in the first few days of life and sometimes even in the first few hours, that ductus arteriosus should close and uh, no longer be patent. Whenever it fails to close, the patient would have a patent ductus arteriosus and this is a problem because it increases pulmonary blood flow and allows oxygenated blood that's in the aorta, which is a very high pressure system, to communicate into the pulmonary artery, where it would then be mixed with venous blood or deoxygenated blood that's on its way to the lungs. So the recirculation of that deoxygenated or the oxygenated blood back into the lungs can sometimes cause some pulmonary overcirculation and um, subsequently causes a left to right shunt remember that um, the aorta is a much higher pressure system than the pulmonary artery and for that reason uh, that is what's causing the left to right shunt in this situation um here your patent ductus arteriosus doesn't have many clinical manifestations other than a machine like murmur and occasionally the um It will increase the workload of the heart and cause a widened pulse pressure, which remember a widened pulse pressure is where your systolic number is higher than 40 millimeter or 40 millimeters of mercury, uh, above the diastolic pressure. And so normal blood pressure, 120 over 80, that's about 40 millimeters of mercury difference. If you started seeing 160 millimeters of mercury, or sorry, 160 over 80, that would be an 80 millimeter of mercury difference between the systolic and diastolic, and that's an example of a widened pulse pressure. Remember that anytime you have an increased workload of the heart, you're more likely to see bounding pulses as well. And so here, this is a relatively simple heart defect to fix. Um, Number one, we can generally give an IV medication called endomethacin, And that will really help promote the closure of that patent ductus arteriosus naturally. And remember, so often this is such a small and minimal defect that it may not cause any symptoms at all, and you may never even know that you have a patent ductus arteriosus unless you hear like that small murmur, and sometimes you never hear it at all. If the endomethacin fails to work and close the PDA uh, naturally, then you may, or if your patient's already in heart surgery for another heart defect, then what you're more likely to see in that situation is a surgical closure, which is just ligation of the patent ductus arteriosus. And remember when I talked about ligation in lecture, it is truly just um, basically two staples that clip off the communication and prevents that recirculation of oxygenated blood back into the lungs. And so that's what we're trying to achieve with endomethacin and surgical closure which is the ligation so this is not technically a cath procedure it's not a cath procedure at all this is where we're making an incision to access and find that communication and then just clip it off um it also is technically not an open heart surgery we're not typically having to go through the sternum to do a PDA ligation if it's a true PDA ligation that's all we're doing we would simply just go through um the intercostal spaces as close to the sternum as we could get and try and access that PDA um through an intercostal space that's high up maybe like your C2 or C3 um and that's it once it's closed then that should resolve the patent ductus arteriosus and prevent oxygenated blood from recirculating back into the lungs completely unless they have more defects than just the PDA. An atrial septal defect is a hole in between the two atria, the left and the right atrium, or, you know, right or left. But the problem here with the atrial septal defect is that because the pressure is always going to be higher on the left side of the heart in a normal heart, um this creates another left to right shunt. And so here you're going to have blood moving from the left atrium that's oxygenated blood from the left atrium and it's going to move into the right atrium through this hole. And um, the movement of that oxygen rich blood into the deoxygenated blood will then increase circulation into the lungs. And again, just like with PDA, you may have the increased pulmonary blood flow and potentially some pulmonary overcirculation because of that. Although this can happen anywhere in the atrium, atrial septum, um, this most commonly occurs because of a patent foramen ovale, which Um, is the hole that allows in fetal circulation for um, oxygen-rich blood to go from the mother, the umbilical cord, um, and then bypass the heart and lungs so that it allows blood to go from the right atrium into the left atrium and then straight into the aorta. Um, So that's ideal in fetal circulation, but when that hole remains open, the uh, pressure changes after birth, and the left side of the heart gets a whole lot more pressure than the right side. and so then you would have a left to right shunt, and you would have that pulmonary overcirculation, especially if the heart defect is large enough to um, cause that. And um, generally speaking, the signs and symptoms here would just be uh, increase in pulmonary artery pressure. And anytime you do have that increase in pulmonary artery pressure, that does indicate that you have some pulmonary hypertension. And that's indicative of that pulmonary overcirculation that we're talking about. Here, you may also see some atrial dysrhythmias from that uh, right atria stretching. Remember, the right atria is where you have your SA and AV node. And so um, you're more likely to experience like ectopic foci in this situation that could cause atrial flutter or atrial fibrillation. And then um, ASDs, can. it's common that they may not be symptomatic at all until later in adulthood, into their 30s and 40s, sometimes even when they start having children, if it's a woman, and then just the increased blood volume that a pregnant woman experiences is enough to cause symptoms that really indicate um, systemic venous congestion. And so when you hear systemic venous congestion, you're thinking, well, that is the same as right-sided heart failure, where the right side of the heart's getting way too much blood, can't keep up with the uh, uh, the uh, preload that we're dealing with, and so blood backs up into the venous systemic circulation, which is then going to show as like your uh, hepatomegaly, enlarged liver, splenomegaly, enlarged spleen, maybe sometimes some ascites, some peripheral edema, especially pitting edema, and JVD. Um, anytime you have pulmonary overcirculation that really does result in um, too much blood flow going into the lungs, the risk there is pulmonary edema. And anytime you have pulmonary edema, that's going to increase the pressure on the alveoli and cause them to collapse. And so you're more likely to experience in that situation atelectasis, crackles, um, impaired gas exchange issues where you're having more dyspnea. Um, more symptoms of respiratory distress. And so, all of those are kind of remember left sided heart failure. Um, and really, in this situation, because we're talking about defects and less about heart failure, those are all indicative of that pulmonary overcirculation that's really causing pulmonary edema. Um, and so, remember that the way that we would fix an atrial septal defect. Is we can do the cardiac cath procedure where we go in through the groin with a small catheter. We make a, uh, and you know insert the needle into generally the femoral artery or radial artery, and we feed it right up into the heart, and then we can place that um, Amplatzer occluder device into the heart to close it. And if that if the patient's not a candidate, perhaps their ASD is way too big, or perhaps it's um, you know for whatever reason, they're not a candidate for that cath procedure, then that's when you would see the open heart surgery being done. And typically this is done on the bypass machine, on the heart-lung bypass machine, where we have to stop the heart um, and really perfuse the blood and oxygenate the blood as the patient is on this heart-lung bypass machine. And so that's a much more invasive procedure. And that's where you're gonna see much more involved critical care after the operation would occur. And we'll talk about post-operative care later in this um, podcast, and we'll also talk about um, cardiac catheterization care and kind of everything that that includes, um, especially post-operative care after a cath procedure. A ventricular septal defect is an opening in between the right and left ventricle. And remember that the left ventricle is really the highest pressure system besides the aorta. So it's certainly the highest pressure system inside of the heart muscle itself, the heart organ itself. So the problem here is that ventricular septal defect can be um, a more aggressive heart defect that has more noticeable signs and symptoms because uh, the volume of blood that's gonna be recirculating through the lungs is much higher than you would expect in an ASD than in an ASD or a PDA for sure. A PDA would only allow a very small amount of blood. An ASD would be, um, you're gonna have some Uh, circulation issues left to right shunting issues but a vsd just because of the nature of how forcefully the left ventricle contracts it's going to be putting quite a bit of blood back into the right ventricle and subsequently into the lungs and so here you really are going to experience a lot more of the increased pulmonary vascular resistance and that's all going to demonstrate as right-sided heart failure or systemic venous um, congestion and so again recall the signs and symptoms of that uh, systemic systemic venous congestion here Um, and again this is another example of a left to right shunt where you have increased pulmonary blood flow and so um in vsd we can you're more likely to see weight gain hepatomegaly Uh, periorbital edema, peripheral edema, JVD, ascites, all of those things that are consistent with that right-sided heart failure and systemic um, uh, congestion, venous congestion. But remember that uh, collaboratively, one of the ways that we can treat VSD is um, that's different from ASD because remember that the treatment here is very similar to ASD. We will do the catheterization um, closure And if they're not a candidate for that, if the VSD is way too large, then we can always do a Dacron patch closure and just sew a patch into place um, with open heart surgery. The only other thing that you may see as a treatment for an uncomplicated VSD, which by that I mean, there's no other congenital heart defects, is PA banding. And PA is pulmonary artery. And so a band means we literally put a band around the pulmonary artery And what that's doing is increasing pressure through the pulmonary artery so that you don't get that left to right shunt so that when the left ventricle pumps it's more likely to pump that blood out into the aorta and into your systemic um, arterial circulation and much less likely to pump that blood back into the right ventricle which then it's recirculating into the lungs so that pa band is a great thing um, and a good way to uh, solve this problem before we do a VSD repair. So coarctation of the aorta is actually where the aorta is physically narrowed, usually right after the arteries that supply the upper portion of the body, so the arms and the head. And um, it what it causes is increased blood flow to the upper body because All of that blood volume that the heart's pumping is only able to really um, go to the upper body, and there's very, very small amounts of uh, our oxygen-rich blood going out to your um, lower body circulation. So that would include your guts, your kidneys, um, your legs, and subsequently, the signs and symptoms of coarctation of the aorta are interesting. You have um, epitaxis, nosebleeds, because the pressure in your head is so high that those little arterioles and capillaries are more likely to bleed. You can have headaches. You'll see bounding upper extremity pulses with weak and thready lower extremity pulses. And of course, it could always impact your urine output. And um, But more than anything, uh, the amount of circulation going up to your head will cause that epitaxis, dizziness, headaches, Um, and then those weak and absent, sometimes absent lower extremity pulses with cool feet. Um, And again, with really severe coarctation, you really can have, um, like, it's not decreased cardiac output and it's not impaired gas exchange, it's simply really and truly ineffective peripheral tissue perfusion um, to the lower portion of your body. And so um, here there's more invasive surgical therapies needed because we really have to open up that coarcted area. And you may do that with that subclavian flap where they sew it on and kind of expand the aorta that way. Um, There's also some cath procedures uh, where you could do uh, basically expand a balloon on the inside of the aorta and kind of pop that little band open that's causing the coarctation. Tetralogy of flow is the most severe form of congenital heart defect that's on this exam. And um, the tet part of tetralogy of flow is referring to four different defects in the same heart. And so here you would have the VSD that we've already talked about. That's an opening between the right and left ventricle. Um, And typically that would cause a left to right shunt um on top of the vsd though you also have pulmonary stenosis which is essentially the same concept as that pulmonary artery banding that we do to um, correct a vsd so here you have a vsd and you also have pulmonary stenosis which really um, uh, uh, hinders blood from entering into the pulmonary circulation and getting oxygenated um you also have an overriding aorta and what that means is that Usually the VSD is very high up on the septum in this situation, and the way that the aorta is positioned is it's really receiving blood from the right and left ventricle. And so um, here you have a true, true mixture of uh, mixed blood going out into your peripheral circulation and not very much blood able to access your pulmonary circulation at all. You also have a right ventricular hypertrophy, which is where the muscle that makes up the right ventricle is really thick. And what that does is um, it decreases the amount of volume that the right ventricle can accept, but more importantly, it increases the pressure in the right ventricle so that it's um, much higher than a normal right ventricle. And um, you're more likely to just get blood going from the right ventricle to the left ventricle, from the right ventricle to the left ventricle. And then, of course, that's, that produces a lot of mixed oxygenation blood out to that aorta as well. And so um, patients with tetralogy of flow definitely require much more invasive surgical interventions where you're not going to be able to correct this heart defect with one simple surgery the way that you would an ASD or a VSD, or you wouldn't be able to correct it in cath lab for sure. Um, So you would expect the patient to need multiple open heart surgeries. And you would also um, typically the signs and symptoms here, because of the mixed oxygenation, um, these patients will experience uh, a lot more murmur than you would, you know, expect in an ASD or VSD or even PDA. Um, you're just going to be able to hear a lot more, uh, of, uh, wishing, like the mixing of the blood, um, in the heart. The big thing here though, is that tetralogy flow, because of the mixed blood, you're going to see low sbo 2 That's almost always the case is that um, you end up having a goal sbo 2 that's much lower than a normal sbo 2 would be in a person who did not have tetralogy flow. And so, of course, like normal sbo 2 is anywhere between 90 to 100 on room air. Um, with tetralogy flow, because that venous blood or the deoxygenated blood on the right side of the heart is getting put th- uh, mixed with oxygen-rich blood on the left side of the heart, um, and then that's getting put out into your systemic arterial circulation. Your spo 2s will be um, honestly anywhere between 70 to 80, and typically the goal is that if it's at 85, you know, anywhere between 75 to 85, that's really um, what we would expect for patients with Tetralogy of Fallot just because of the nature of the mix, the mixing. Now here with Tetralogy of Fallot, we, we really don't have It's not a true gas exchange issue. It's not that there's anything wrong anatomically or physiologically with the alveoli. It's or that there's an airway issue. It's also not necessarily that you have a decrease in cardiac output here. um, The problem with the low SpO2 really is secondary to um, the... Uh, mixture of that blood. And so you can increase FiO2 and increase oxygen concentration, but that really doesn't necessarily help, um, you know, improve the SpO2. And you kind of don't want to do that too much because then you really will, the more you increase FiO2, the more alveolar damage you're promoting. And that will then cause issues with impaired gas exchange. And so um, here, whenever they have these Uh, episodes that we would call tet spells tetralogy flow tet spells which is where they have periods of cyanosis um, around their mouth and their fingertips especially when they're crying and eating Um, that's something that the nurse would want to kind of stop what you're doing and attend to right away you don't you want to be monitoring that patient closely during those tet spells to make sure that they recover Um, you know in the ICU setting when we're monitoring patients with tetralogy We want to see that cyanosis resolve. We want to see their SpO2 increase, and hopefully do that on its own. And if it doesn't, then um, you know if they don't recover, and they stay uh, at an SpO2, SpO2 is going to drop down to you know 60 and below. And so if they can't recover that SpO2 on their own, they may actually require um, some intervention, like some mechanical ventilation, perhaps, or you know an increase in FiO2. Um, although we typically won't do that. Another really easy intervention that you can do to help these patients um, right away is help them assume the knees to chest position or knee chest position. And that's where you physically put their knees to their chest if they're a little baby with a congenital heart defect. They can't do that themselves. Um, The knees to chest position, the reason that is a nursing intervention that we would um, incorporate into care of a patient with tetralogy of flow is because it increases pulmonary circulation so that they can get that blood past that pulmonary stenosis and really improve their overall um, oxygen concentration, oxygen content of their blood, right, their PaO2. And so um, here, you know, because it's not truly an issue with gas exchange, you're not necessarily going to see that um, increase in FiO2 during those test spells. The best thing that they, you really can do for them is put them in that knees to chest position. And you wouldn't want to wait too long to do that, especially if they're not able to self-recover, which means that they aren't able to get their SBO 2 up on their own when they calm down or when they stop eating or anything like that. And you'll also see um, kids with tetralogy flow assume that needs to chest position on their own, um, like if they're running around the playground and they're becoming dyspneic and having some issues with, um, you know, uh, oxygen delivery to the tissues. So they'll assume that on their own as well. So because several of these heart defects are corrected with cardiac catheterization procedures, Remember that we are going through the groin. Usually this is this can be done on an outpatient basis. And what we're doing is going through the groin, accessing the femoral artery or the radial artery, which is in your wrist. And we would feed a catheter um, into the left side of the heart typically and um, use different devices to correct the defect. And anytime you're accessing a high pressure system like an artery, the, what the post-procedure care looks like is having the patient lay flat, usually for a little while. You know, they need to um, definitely lay flat for uh, a few hours after surgery, but you would not expect this patient to necessarily need ICU admission or ICU care. Um, they typically will, uh, will make sure that they aren't going to bleed out, and then um, they may be monitored overnight, especially if it's a procedure that happens later in the day. But you wouldn't necessarily expect that they would need like intensive care or intensive care monitoring or anything like that. Um, after that catheterization procedure, you're going to be holding a lot of pressure directly on the insertion site and checking it every 15 minutes at least to make sure that there's no bleeding. Um, we don't want that patient up and walking, and we don't want to just walk away from that insertion site until we know that it's clotted off and the patient's not going to be um, bleeding out. So that's a really, really important uh, post-procedure nursing intervention. And um, besides that, you're always kind of looking for monitoring vital signs, uh, monitoring peripheral pulses after a cath procedure, and then looking at that site for any hematoma formation um, or anything like that as well. the other thing is that a lot of these uh, heart defects are corrected with open heart surgery um, with or without cardiopulmonary bypass. And so um, this is more likely to be the situation, especially with severe VSD, coarctation of the aorta and tetralogy of Fallot. And so remember that your post-operative care, there's a few medications Um, that you are likely to see in post-operative care because the patient will typically be mechanically ventilated in the ICU um, for at least a little bit until they're showing signs of um, independent ventilation and spontaneous breathing with uh, adequate tidal volumes and adequate gas exchange. And so um, while they're on that mechanical ventilator, you would expect to see sedation so that we can keep them comfortable. Um, That's typically done with anything from fentanyl to Versed to morphine. Um, There's quite a wide range of sedation that you may see with mechanical ventilators. Um, The other things that you're looking at is you're looking for adequate perfusion, signs of adequate peripheral tissue perfusion. We want to see that those pulses are plus two. We want to see that cap refill that's less than three. We want to see hands and feet that are warm and equal. Um, we wanna make sure that the kidneys are getting adequately perfused. And the way that we would do that is we would be looking at urine output. And so we always wanna make sure that the patient is um, putting out at least one milliliter per kilogram per hour. And so let's just say it's a five kilogram baby and they had heart surgery the day before, we would definitely at least wanna see five milliliters an hour of urine output and um, you know nothing more than 10 milliliters per kilogram per output because that would be considered polyuria or maybe they're just having way too much output and now they're at risk for fluid volume deficit so urine output is really really important and um, it's important that you're looking at that because that is really an indicator of renal perfusion if their kidneys aren't getting adequate perfusion, then they're going to eventually have acute kidney injury or even renal failure. And so, um, and that's also just a good indicator that like the patient's not getting shocky. Uh, and you know, so you wanna make sure that that's happening. We're gonna continuously monitor vital signs. We're gonna continuously monitor heart rhythm. And um, you're also looking at bowel function. You want those bowel sounds to be normal, active. You want any diet to be tolerated well. Poor tolerance, gas, gastric distension, hypoactive bowel sounds, absent bowel signs, all of those are indicators that the gut isn't getting very good perfusion. So you'd really want to stay on top of that as well. And then um, the other thing that the patients will typically come out with is external pacing wires. Those are actually attached... Um, On the heart, one is typically attached to the ventricle and the other is attached near the ventricle. And um, we can use those external pacing wires in case the patient's heart rate drops and they're not able to sustain a heart rate, then we can use that pacing box external to the patient temporarily to just make sure that their heart rate stays high enough for cardiac output to be um, adequate. Um, Sometimes you'll see digoxin being used. And that is always, anytime you see digoxin being used, it's to increase contractility. Digoxin makes the heart beat a lot slower and a lot more forcefully than normal. And so anytime you give digoxin, you have to make sure that the heart rate is above 60. If it's not, then you're going to slow it down even more. And so we always want to make sure that the patients, that we're listening to the patient's apical pulse Um, you know, listening for a full minute to the apical pulse and counting every single beat to make sure that the apical pulse is higher than 60 beats per minute. That's especially true in adults. Um, Sorry, that's especially true in kids and adults, but the 60 beats per minute is an adult uh, heart rate range. And so that's what I would want you to know. Remember that digoxin and potassium but um, compete for binding sites, and so um, anytime you have a potassium imbalance, if the potassium is too high, um, it will make digoxin, you know, not bind as readily and uh, prevent digoxin from binding to those receptors, and so that will decrease the effectiveness of digoxin. And anytime potassium is too low, that's also a problem because then you're going to have too much digoxin binding to sites. And, um, that could cause, that's going to set the patient up for digoxin toxicity. Um, signs and symptoms of digoxin toxicity are, you know, your halos, you'll get like those visual disturbances and, um, you can also get nausea, vomiting, diarrhea. Um, so I always remember digoxin is a digestive, you know, those digestive signs, symptoms of toxicity. And then, um let me think here. So digoxin, the other thing is, um, post-operatively, you're going to want to look at your ABGs frequently, um, at least every two hours, um, as they become stable, that might, you know, dip down to every four hours. You're going to be doing, um, stat, uh, chem panels and CBCs. And so that means that we're not sending that, um, Blood work down to the lab. We're just monitoring that at the bedside and making sure that those levels are normal. So, you would be looking for any signs, symptoms of anemia or blood loss, hemorrhage, and that would be evidenced by that red blood cell, uh, hemoglobin, hematocrit. The other thing that you're really wanting to look at, a high priority um, value on your chem panel, is going to be your potassium, of course, because. Again, if the patient's on any kind of digoxin, then that is going to mess with the digoxin binding. And um, hyperkalemia and hypokalemia can both set the patient up for dysrhythmias. Calcium can too, but it's less likely than in uh, potassium imbalances. Sodium can too, but it's less likely than in um, potassium imbalances. And potassium imbalances are more likely to cause a lethal dysrhythmias. Your ventricular fibrillation, uh, you know, cardiac standstill, stuff like that. And so, in pulmonary, or sorry, um, pulseless electrical activity. And so, you want to avoid those and make sure that you're monitoring all those electrolyte levels. BUN and creatinine are also really important because that indicates kidney function and perfusion. And so, um, lastly, the patient is likely to have a chest tube when they come out of surgery, at least one, if not three or four. And the nurse's role in chest tube output. Your chest tube management is to look at output and um, make sure that the patient is, um, that the output that's, you know, that it's really just expected. I mean, the chest tube is in there for a reason. It's in there to drain the lungs of any fluid that's accumulating and drain the pericardium of any fluid that's accumulating so that we're preventing cardiac tamponade. So that's a function of it. You would expect some output. But you would never want to see large amounts of output. If there's three milliliters per kilogram per hour, um, you know, three to five, like milliliters per kilogram per hour, that's too much chest tube output. Um, and you would really want to make sure that you're staying aware of that. So let's say for, a, a you know, 10 kilogram baby, you would never want to see 50, uh, milliliters an hour. That's just too much blood volume that the patient's losing. And then if at any, In any one hour period, if the patient has five to 10 milliliters per kilogram in a one hour period, that really warrants a call to the surgeon, especially if there's evidence that that's like arterial or bright red bleeding, that's pulsatile, you would really want, that would warrant, um, you know, a call to the uh, surgeon. And so make sure that you are reviewing that content and anything else regarding kind of postoperative care that we talked about in class. Thank you so much for listening. If you have any questions about this content uh, that we reviewed in this podcast, feel free to email me and let me know.